My name is David Halperin. I'm the CEO of Israel Policy Forum. There truly are no words to adequately express our profound outrage, our grief, and the tremendous pain we all have suffered since the horrific terrorist attack by Hamas on October 7th. We have all spent sleepless days and nights checking news updates, checking on our loved ones, and falling into tears. Every Israeli household knows someone who has been killed, who's been injured, or who has been taken hostage by Hamas terrorists. And I know so many listening to this message know family, friends, and loved ones whose lives have been lost or forever changed by these horrific events. Our hearts, our prayers, and our thoughts are with you and with all of Israel in these tremendously dark days. There is no justification whatsoever for the horrific, brutal massacre the world has witnessed. And so many of us have been utterly dismayed by those that have been unable to unequivocally condemn the slaughter conducted by Hamas or even call it terrorism. We have been uplifted by stories of heroism and by Israelis and communities across the United States springing into action to volunteer, to rally, and to offer support. Our hearts are truly broken for the people of Israel. And our thoughts are also with Palestinian civilians in Gaza who are suffering from this war, a war that Hamas chose to launch with its unconscionable, brutal savagery on October 7th. Israel Policy Forum is firmly committed to realizing a future in which Israel's security is not threatened and never again violated as it was on that dark day. And we are committed to realizing a future in which Israelis and Palestinians share and enjoy security, dignity, humanity, basic decency in a more peaceful and secure future for the entire region. Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Shani Reichman, the IPFT Director at Israel Policy Forum, and I'm your host for this emergency wartime podcast, where I will be interviewing our usual host, Neri Silber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor at Israel Policy Forum. Shalom, Neri. Hi, Shani. Uh, it's good to be with you. It's weird to say that. Yeah. We're, we're speaking on Thursday, October 12th. It's early afternoon for me in New York, and it's the evening for Neri in Tel Aviv. We're speaking almost a week after the most brutal attack Israel has probably ever seen. We know the Israeli people are, of course, a very resilient bunch and have a tendency to spring into action, but this is obviously an unimaginably difficult time for them, as it is for, for people around the world. So I'm wondering, what is the mood inside of Israel? We've heard reports of massive mobilization efforts from the democracy protesters even, and certainly in the North American Jewish community, we've seen a lot of funds quickly accumulated. But what's actually happening on the ground? Um, what, what is the feeling? What is the mood? Well, uh, as you can imagine, as everyone can imagine, the mood is uh, quite difficult here in Israel. Um, you have a situation where what happened this past Saturday, uh, it's not one of the worst days or bloodiest days, as you put it, uh, in Israeli history. It is uh, the worst and the bloodiest day in Israeli history, uh, I'd argue, by by some measure. Uh, and it's not just the body count. I think we're now up to over 1,300 killed, um, thousands injured, uh, probably 150 hostages taken, uh, including women, children, and the elderly. 
um, into Gaza. Uh, and all those numbers, uh, as I mentioned on the Israel Policy Forum webinar earlier this week, uh, all those numbers are still likely to rise, uh, sadly and tragically. Um, but it's, you know, what actually happened and uh, the manner that it happened uh, shook Israel to its very core. And, uh, you know, a lot of conceptions that Israel had uh, on Friday night, uh, Israelis went to bed Friday night with one image of the world, and uh, Saturday a lot of those uh, preconceptions or conceptions uh, were shattered, uh, like faith in its vaunted intelligence service and uh, the power of its military, uh, the, the ability of the country to, on a very basic level, protect citizens, um, uh, and also, uh, you know, we can talk about it later, but, uh, it's policy vis-a-vis Gaza and Hamas and just, I think writ large Israel's place, uh, in the Middle East and what that means. And we can maybe get into that a little later on, uh, just given the savagery of what we saw. And I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, uh, whether on mainstream media outlets or even on their s- smartphones, uh, the videos and images of uh, what actually happened on Saturday. Uh, there are no, there are no words, uh, and that's really when Israelis. Whenever you approach an Israeli, uh, whether personally or you know a family member checking in, uh, or you know you're a journalist trying to interview someone, you know how, the first question is, you know, how are you doing? Uh, you know, and the person responds back, you know, uh, I'm okay or I'm, I'm doing okay, but. Uh, um, really, the, the the answer that you always get is that there are really no words to describe what happened and also um, what it has done in just a few days to Israeli society. Um, you know, I was walking around uh, earlier in Tel Aviv and uh, people are walking down the street uh, by themselves, just crying. And uh, Shani, you know Israelis very well. Uh, they're a very loud and boisterous bunch. Um, everything's quiet. You know, not only because of the threat of rocket sirens uh, and rockets raining down even on Tel Aviv and north of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and not just southern Israel, which is still getting bombarded, um, but just just the mood. Everyone is is, is quite, is, I think, still in shock, traumatized, traumatized. Um, and that's on top of the actual images and what we all know happened uh, in southern Israel uh, near the Gaza region, near the Gaza border. Uh, on Saturday, uh, you know, I don't want to get too graphic for our listeners. Um, suffice it to say that uh, as a journalist, um, for the last couple of days, I've, I've been, uh, for stories, I've been interviewing uh, whether relatives of uh, those who were kidnapped. Uh, so I interviewed a relative of, uh, of someone whose 85-year-old grandmother was seized uh, from one of the communities and is now presumed to be in, in the Gaza Strip. I interviewed a relative of another person whose uh, relatives were, um, the entire family was taken. So the grandparents, the parents, and a nine-month baby and a four-year-old boy. And they're all presumed to be being held in captivity in, uh, in Gaza. Um, and also uh, people who, who had loved ones who, who were killed. And just earlier today, I was speaking to someone who... Um, lost his nephew in Barry, and he was explaining to me uh, what just happened. Again, I'm not going to get uh, too into the graphic details, but um, you know, the trauma isn't just uh, of the people who were immediately impacted. This, these are trauma waves that go well, well beyond. Um, and I'll just say that uh, 
uh, this is both kind of a personal and professional uh, observation, uh, you know, everyone is, is really just kind of um, uh, underwater in terms of just uh, whatever role they have, right? Uh, whether comforting people or sheltering people or mobilizing to, uh, you know, put together boxes to send out to soldiers of uh, toiletries and food. Um, or people actually mobilizing for the reserves. Uh, over 300,000 Israelis have already been mobilized into the reserves. Um, or people who, uh, you know, are, are still helping, you know, volunteers who are clearing, still clearing houses in these burnt down and uh, massacred communities uh, who are identifying bodies. Uh, and yes, even journalists uh, who, who are covering all of this um, and working around the clock. Uh, so you send a message to someone and uh, a contact of mine and a friend who has been on this podcast multiple times and he writes back, he says, sorry, Neri, I, I can't talk. Uh, I'm going from one funeral to reserve duty, to a funeral, to reserve duty, to a funeral. Um, and uh, that's the reality of, of just one person. So uh, nobody has been unimpacted. Uh, here in Israel, and, and we're only uh, six days into it. Yeah, there's been something very haunting almost about speaking to Israelis who are usually so enthusiastic and emotive um, and hearing them, you know, so forlorn. It's it's definitely, it's unusual. Um, and I, I will say people here also figuring out how to ask the are you okay question. Yeah. I've been saying, are you okay-ish? Or I hope your relatives, your family is relatively safe. I, I don't even know how to ask the question, let alone answer it. So it's it's definitely been a, a really a really awful week for all of us. Yeah, and also um, people who uh, care about Israel and follow Israel from afar, uh, they they are also. I, I know people. I'm sure Shani and uh, people associated with IPF and. Uh, people who listen to this podcast, people are glued to their TVs uh, following developments because they, A, care so deeply about Israel, uh, and B, uh, they can't believe something like this happened. Can't believe it. Um, and, and neither can Israelis. And that's, uh, that's what's, uh, w what an entire society is trying to process uh, in, in these days, during these days, uh, and also fight a war at the same time. Speaking of, maybe you can tell us a little bit about where we are at with this war, because honestly, every, a few days ago, I saw a report that uh, the last of the infiltrators were being removed from from the Gaza, the surrounding Gaza border areas. And I thought to myself, they're still here. Um, so I, I think I just want to know what what is the situation in the kibbutzim surrounding the Gaza border, which, you know, some of them lost, uh, I've seen up, up to 20% of their populations. Uh, what is the status of, of the people there? Have they all been evacuated? Um, what does it look like in the, in the Gaza border communities right now? Where, which is where we saw the most awful of massacres, of course. So the region immediately bordering uh, the Gaza Strip, um, yes, I mean, uh, there are no civilians remaining there. It's a closed military zone. That's where the IDF is massing uh, for what we all expect will be a, a, a genuine and real ground operation um, into Gaza. And again, we can maybe get into that in a little bit. Uh, but that's a closed military zone. And also, uh, like I said, they're still uh, clearing bodies and uh, finding bodies and clearing wreckage. Uh, so that's what's happening down there. And yes, uh, the border fence uh, between Israel and the Gaza Strip that everyone believed was this massive, formidable, high-tech security barrier uh, on the 
frontier between Gaza and Israel, uh, that was breached in at least uh, 20 spots. So that is no longer existent. Uh, the combat engineers from the IDF are trying to, to fix that. But it's essentially, a, you know, what the IDF calls a wall of steel of uh, tanks and drones overhead. Uh, but it's still, there are still holes in it. Uh, so even, uh, I think an hour ago, there was uh, an infiltration attempt in the southern Gaza region into Israel. And uh, I think those, those terrorists were, were captured. So uh, that is still going on, and that's why you see everyone here now and again uh, firefights uh, breaking out between uh, Hamas gunmen and uh, IDF forces. Uh, but again, that's um, you know it's a very different situation than what uh, happened on Saturday. Uh, they're now dealing with a a real army and not uh, defenseless uh, babies and civilians and elderly people. Speaking of that. Uh, what seems an inevitable ground invasion. What do we think that's going to look like? What is it already looking like in Gaza um, in terms of, you know, water, electricity, things of that nature, airstrikes? What's happening on the ground there? Right. So uh, just in terms of how this war uh, is going at the moment, the state of play of of the actual Israel-Gaza conflict. Um, So we talked about the southern border region, uh, but the Israeli Air Force is obviously striking Gaza very hard. Uh, Those are images that I'm sure uh, our listeners uh, are seeing as well. And uh, they're they're attacking um, all kinds of targets inside Gaza. uh, And I believe the rules of engagement have uh, have definitely been loosened. uh, If you, you compare it to previous uh, rounds of hostilities between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Uh, so you're seeing, well, uh, more widespread damage, definitely a lot quicker. Uh, and that's all meant to to go after uh, Hamas uh, targets, assets, infrastructure, leaders, fighters, and the like. Uh, and also the what the Israelis call the governance capabilities of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Uh, so yes, widespread damage and destruction. And, and like you said, the humanitarian situation in, inside Gaza is, uh, is very dire. Uh, you know, I, don't, I think they've lost the power plant. I'm not sure if there's any electricity unless you have a generator, which I'm sure uh, Hamas uh, does, and probably enough fuel to run it for themselves, but not the civilian population of Gaza. Uh, I think the hospitals are running out of medicine. Uh, the water situation in terms of clean drinking water is um, is, is difficult as well. Uh, and it's unclear, due to my reporting, whether the border crossing between Gaza and Egypt is actually opened uh, or closed. It had been open, and then it was closed, uh, and now it may be open again. Uh, so that might be a possibility of getting at least a, a humanitarian corridor to get uh, much needed supplies into Gaza and maybe people out of Gaza. Uh, but none of that has happened as of yet. Uh, as uh, the Israeli defense minister said, they're, they're laying siege uh, on Gaza. And uh, I guess from their point of view, it's meant to uh, both degrade Hamas's ability uh, to fight uh, in terms of its war fighting capabilities, and also, um, I suppose, to uh, have the population of Gaza apply pressure uh, on Hamas uh, uh, to either release the hostages or, or to stop the fighting. I mean, that's not going to happen. Uh, but uh, but in terms of just exacting a price, I think, is the Israeli stra- uh, perspective or, or mindset in terms of uh, the rationale behind this uh, this bombing campaign, which is, uh, like I said, much more, much more severe and much wide, wider spread than uh, any previous round uh, that we've seen. Uh, obviously, on the other side of the ledger, uh, Hamas is still firing rockets uh, into Israel. Uh, they've reached as far north as Haifa. 
uh, and even Tel Aviv, we've gotten sirens, especially in the first uh, several days. Uh, today, actually, there has been no siren in 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 my neck of the woods. Uh, they fired on Jerusalem a fair amount uh, the first few days. Uh, today, Beersheba uh, got several barrages in the late uh, late afternoon, uh, and obviously, southern Israel is getting. Um, is getting very severely hammered as well. There were, uh, I think, fatalities in Shterot from rocket fire. So there's that. And then uh, on top of that, and again, I, we should caveat all of this. We should have probably mentioned this at the top, Shani, but uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to um, freak anybody out, but I also don't want to sugarcoat things uh, for people who, who are listening and, and obviously concerned about everything happening here at the moment. Uh, so, so again, uh, my intention isn't to freak people out, but my concern right now, um, is number one, uh, the North, the Northern frontier, which, uh, we've seen rockets fired from there and anti-tank missiles. Um, and there are alerts going off all the time, although a lot of them are fake alerts in terms of rocket fire and barrages coming from the North from Hezbollah based in Lebanon. So if there's a Northern front that opens up, that's a, a whole different ball game. Um, we're also watching Jerusalem tomorrow, uh, Al-Aqsa mosque in the old city, Friday prayers, uh, on a good day that can be, and a powder keg, uh, but especially given everything that's happened this past week, uh, tomorrow uh, I'm, I'm praying that uh, it goes off relatively smoothly uh, because that could trigger all kinds of other reactions from all kinds of other actors in the region. Uh, and then finally, the West Bank, uh, it hasn't gotten that much attention due to everything going on. In normal days, it would be huge news, but um, I think there's at least over 25 Palestinians uh, killed in the West Bank since Saturday, uh, which is a massive number, uh, whether from uh, IDF fire or settlers, uh, far-right ultra-nationalist settlers uh, taking matters into their own hands and attacking Palestinians. So they're obviously not making things uh, any better, uh, and that in and of itself could also spiral out of control. Uh, so quite concerning what's happening in the West Bank. But relatively speaking, uh, the West Bank, Jerusalem, and also uh, inside Israel proper uh, has remained relatively calm uh, since Saturday. And, and again, that, that's not a given. Neri, let's go into a few more, um, a little bit more in depth into some of what you have mentioned already. So with regards to Egypt, of course, we know that they also man one of the one of the borders with with the Gaza Strip. So are you optimistic about their prospects for actually getting involved and helping get at least some of the hostages out, maybe perhaps those with U.S. or other foreign citizenship out um, of the Gaza Strip? Is there any optimism that you hold regarding the role they could be playing, especially if there's some U.S. pressure on them to do so, maybe some pressure from other Arab countries as well? I hope so. I hope so. Uh, we haven't seen any real movement towards any kind of hostage deal or let alone a hostage release situation uh, yet. Uh, it doesn't mean it's, it's not possible, but it, there's just been no real movement towards that end uh, since Saturday. And so, yes, uh, Egypt could, could weigh in because it has a lot of leverage over Hamas and Gaza. The Qataris, obviously the biggest financial backers of Hamas and Gaza, they could actually apply uh, real pressure on Hamas. Uh, President Erdogan in Turkey uh, could also... Uh, bring his formidable weight to bear uh, on Hamas uh, and also the European nations, uh, which, by the way, there are a lot of Europeans, uh, dual citizens, uh, that are being held. I think earlier today, I think there are 41, uh, I think there were 41 Americans either killed or taken hostage since Saturday that, that, that people know of. Uh, 
41 Americans. It's a massive number. If 40 Americans were either killed or taken captive in any other place in the world, uh, that, that in and of itself would be leading CNN uh, you know, every day of, of every week. So, uh, yes, uh, a lot of uh, the countries in the world um, are directly involved in, in what's happening, and hopefully they bring their, their formidable influence to bear uh, to make it clear to Hamas that what happened on Saturday is, is uh, again, uh, you know, we talked about words don't quite do it justice, but it, it's not only beyond the pale, but uh, I think for the, for the good of everybody, they need to at least re- release, uh, you know, the elderly, the women, the, the babies, uh, I don't see I don't see a reason for them to to be held in captivity. Um, but again, like I said, we haven't seen any movement towards that. Uh, and and Egypt, by the way, Egypt is really concerned that due to the deteriorating humanitarian situation inside Gaza, that you're going to see a flood of Palestinians from Gaza start heading across the border into Sinai, uh, and that's a real fear by the Egyptians. So they're actually. Uh, applying, I'd argue, more pressure on Israel to to show more restraint in in their bombing campaign uh, than they seem to be on Hamas uh, after what they perpetrated on on Saturday, which was an atrocity and a war crime, uh, and also them holding uh, innocent civilians hostage. In terms of the role the U.S. can play, as you mentioned, there. I think, believe you said 41 Americans killed or taken hostage. So Joe Biden, as we know, sent a really clear and strong message of support. And I think we saw ads on the Ayalon Highway in Tel Aviv saying, thank you, Mr. President. Tons of Israelis are messaging me, thrilled to see Joe Biden tweeting and, and speaking out messages of support for the Israeli people. Um, we also know that he's sending some military backup. So what does that backup look like? And do you think that's going to make a difference in terms of the deterrence? Do you think it's only going to be used if it's looking like an existential war for Israel's exist, uh, for Israel's uh, safety? Or do you think that uh, they're likely to move forward and actually make some moves? So I'll take it in reverse order. Uh, I don't know what the ultimate intentions and backstop of the Biden administration will be. Uh, maybe some people listening to this podcast have uh, better insight than I do. And if so, uh, shoot me a note uh, whether they would actually deploy the vast military assets that they've moved over into the Eastern Mediterranean, a, uh, a U.S. Uh, carrier strike group, and I believe another one is on its way. Uh, that in and of itself was a huge, huge move uh, for Israel, uh, just in terms of trying to deter Hezbollah and anyone else i.e. Iran, from getting actively involved in what's happening here right now. Uh, So sending at least the message and signaling that the U.S. may actually deploy its own forces uh, if if need be. And I think uh, Anthony Blinken uh, said as much here, the Secretary of State. uh, He landed here earlier today and he gave a a very powerful message, uh, essentially saying that uh, while Israel always took great pride in defending itself by itself, and that will all remain true, uh, it should never feel that it has to do all of that alone. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially the, uh, the gist of, of what Blinken said. So yes, in terms of the military uh, assets deployed, that, that's a huge move. Um, and also the rhetoric coming from President Biden. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, if you're watching Israeli television, they run the clips uh, of Biden uh, speaking. Uh, and the threats uh, Biden issued uh, vis-a-vis Iran and Hezbollah to stay out, uh, and also just Biden's heartfelt, um, uh, agonizing 
words uh, to the Israeli public about what happened on Saturday, and it's being played again and again, not on you know the actual newscast, but just in between, uh, you know, as a commercial almost uh, to bolster the spirits of the Israeli people, and uh, that's sorely needed right now. And I can't, I can't overstate how important that was and how how important uh, it was for Israelis to hear that, especially uh, given the absence of, uh, shall we say, powerful, strong, um, capable leadership uh, that we're seeing here by Israeli leaders at the moment. Uh, we'll get into that in a second, I know, Shani. So yes, uh, sum up, uh, Biden has been in- indispensable. Uh, he's said all the right things. He's made all the right moves. I personally would love to know uh, whether like we said, and, and we're inquiring about whether the Americans would actually get directly involved, if need be, if Hezbollah actually threatened or did open up a second front uh, against Israel. So speaking of that, I know we've had some some false alarms or some real alarms coming in from the northern front. Every security briefing, every briefing with an analyst focused on Israeli security in the past year that I've had did predict some kind of attempted ground invasion into Israel, but never from Hamas in the Gaza Strip, always from Hezbollah at the Lebanon border. So is that something that's still on the table? I know that's something that we're all kind of waiting to see, but can you speak more about what is true and what is not true in terms of the threat coming from the north and how that's coordinated with Hamas in the Gaza Strip? We know that Hamas is trying to place pressure on Hezbollah, just like they're trying to pressure, frankly, the entire Arab and even the entire Muslim world to get involved. But we also know that there's, there is some potential to diplomatically pressure Hezbollah to not engage in this war. So what are the different dynamics that are influencing the decisions being made from Lebanon? So I think I mentioned this to someone else earlier today, or maybe another media a hit. It's hard to, uh, hard to remember, uh, given the fast pace of events here, uh, and also very little sleep since, uh, since uh, well, Friday night. Uh, that was the last real night of sleep. So... Yes. I mean, basically, we should all be very humble and show a bit more humility about trying to prognosticate and get into the minds of, uh, you know, militant Islamist leaders like Hassan Nasrallah, uh, who leads Hezbollah, and obviously the uh, the individuals who lead Hamas in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar, Mohammed Def, and the like. Uh, we should all be a bit more humble in trying to ascertain what they may or may not be capable of doing. Um, would Hezbollah get involved? Yes, you know, there's a real possibility they would, uh, just given the scale of what's happening here at the moment. Um, will they? Uh, nobody knows for sure. Uh, and that's why Israel has gone on high alert in the north. They've massed forces uh, in the north. It's not just uh, all about the south, uh, believe me. Uh, and we should say, this is a caveat, but this might be uh, the only ray of sunshine uh, on an otherwise very gloomy podcast. Uh, the big difference between now and Saturday morning is that uh, the IDF and the Israeli security apparatus and the Israeli public and everybody uh, is mobilized and on alert and they're not going to be taken by surprise again. Uh, And that's, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, reasons why Saturday morning happened, uh, but the element of surprise was was the biggest one. Uh, And also the conception. Uh, Nobody believed that Hamas could pull off an operation of this scale and the sophistication uh, and with such devastating results. Uh, nobody is underestimating uh, these groups, whether 
Hamas or Hezbollah or anybody else uh, in the immediate vicinity, uh, believe me, nobody's underestimating them and, and there's a lot more humility being shown. So anything is possible, everything is in play, uh, whether all these scenarios will actually come to pass, uh, nobody is quite sure, but we're prepared for anything. Uh, both as people physically here and also, I imagine, uh, the Israeli uh, military and political leadership. So in terms of Hezbollah, yes, uh, we've seen, you know, sporadic rocket mortar fire, uh, anti-tank missile fire um, across the border at uh, Israeli positions and uh, Israeli personnel. Uh, there was a, at least one, if not two, infiltration attempts uh, the other night, uh, one quite deadly um, a deputy brigade commander uh, was killed, a Druze uh, Israeli, by the way, not a Jew, um, and apparently a, a very a very formidable officer. He was killed, so apparently it was a, a, very, a very difficult firefight. Uh, so infiltration attempts uh, are possible, although I think overall it's been quiet uh, over the past 24 hours. So, and, and yes, you've had those false alarms as well of, uh, you know, I suppose they thought it was a Hezbollah drone swarm coming across the border, uh, an itchy trigger finger for the radar command uh, up north. And that's why you got these massive alerts all across northern Israel, like there was a massive uh, rocket and missile barrage incoming. Uh, it turned out to be a false alarm. So everyone is, is quite jumpy. Uh, but I, I, I keep telling people, uh, even if it's just to myself screaming at the TV, um, it's better to be jumpy and on alert than, uh, than not, than the alternative. Yeah, so at the very least, we can take comfort in knowing that the IDF will not be caught off guard in this way anytime in the near future. But speaking of that, speaking of the preparedness of the IDF and turning back to the mood of Israelis, I think Israelis and American Jews, frankly, as well, including myself, have always felt very certain of Israel's ability to defeat any threat, no matter what it is. And that confidence, has that been shattered in any way? Has that, has that been affected? I, I will say um, on the American Jewish side, it's very stressful to see Israel um, uh, being attacked in this way and, and kind of being caught with its guard down. It's something that really surprised all of us. So do Israelis feel that level of confidence or um, is part of the anxiety and the mood right now more than just grief, but actual fear for the future as well? Not to take this podcast down such a, such a depressing route. No, uh, you know, it's depressing, but it happens to be reality. Uh, the short answer is absolutely. Uh, like I said, the, the shattered conceptions coming out of Saturday morning, uh, that's probably the biggest one, that uh, the sense of vulnerability on the part of, of Israelis and people uh, from afar watching Israel, uh, no one believed that this could be possible, uh, not on this scale, uh, that uh, the vaunted Israeli defense forces the very formidable intelligence apparatus uh, at its disposal. Um, I'll tell you, Shani, I've been doing this for, for a long time, and you always get messages or you're given briefings by uh, senior military officers about these uh, very expensive, very fancy weapon systems that are coming online. Uh, we got briefings or we got briefings about, uh, you know, the Iranian nuclear threat and the uh, the ability of, of Israel to uh, strike any target anywhere in the Middle East with high precision and that nobody should mess with Israel uh, and that Israel can rain down a level of firepower on any group in, in, in the Middle East uh, like they've never seen before and, and on and on and on. And we've heard this uh, for years, for years. And uh, all of that came to, uh, 
came crashing down uh, Saturday. So that's uh, that's the bad news. That's the the gloomy and depressing part. The good news is that all those very powerful weapon systems and the vaunted IDF, which yes, still exists, uh, it still is the most powerful military in the Middle East, uh, is now being uh, mobilized for war. And so all these uh, capabilities uh, will will be brought to bear if needed. Uh, and a lot of people, uh, not just are, are part of the war effort, but they're highly motivated uh, to to win this war, to win this war. And so uh, that's that's the good positive side of the ledger um, in terms of just how how Israelis feel uh, about things. But uh, but yes, uh, a deep sense of vulnerability and. Uh, you know, people compare this to uh, this being Israel's 9-11, right? You keep hearing that. I heard it firsthand from from Israeli officials. Uh, and yes, in terms of the failure of imagination, like, uh, I don't know, I think you might be too young, but uh, we heard that all the time after after September 11, 2001, where uh, it was a failure of imagination, not just an intelligence failure on the part of the, uh, the U.S. Uh, intelligence community, but a failure of imagination to think that something like 9-11 could be possible. So in that sense, it's, it's, it is Israel's 9-11 to think that Hamas was able to, to successfully pull something like this off. But in terms of scale, um, we may get to the number of killed Israelis just on one day on Saturday alone, uh, very close to, if not, if not at, uh, the same number of Americans killed in New York, Washington, and Pennsylvania on 9-11. And America has 350 million people, and Israel is a country of 10 million people. So it'd be like, uh, with the numbers right now, it'd be like if 40,000 Americans died on 9-11. 40,000 Americans. That would be the, the equivalent. Uh, so 40,000 Amer- Americans dead. Thanks, Neri, for putting that in perspective into American terms. And I will say, even from here... I speak fluent. I speak fluent American, as you know. <laughs> you do. It's my favorite as I, thing as about I should. you. <laughs> um, we, as I should. We actually have, um, as you know, many from our from our staff and from our broader IPF community, even in the states, who have friends and family who are killed and, and hostages, and it's been uh, incredibly painful. And it reminds of, us of how small Israel is and how small the Jewish community is, also, of course. Um, yeah. When we're thinking, no one's been unaffected. That's for sure. Thinking of how the Israeli leadership and even American leadership are talking about this upcoming or ongoing military operation in the Gaza Strip, they are using the phrase of dismantling Hamas and removing Hamas from power. Do you have any insights as to what that actually means? If it's even possible, what can that look like? How long will it take? I know these are not easy questions, but it's something that's been on my mind because it feels like an almost impossible task. Um, doesn't mean it's not worth trying, but I'm wondering what your reflections on this are. So your question is well taken because we also don't have a clear-cut answer about what that means. Uh, if anybody listening listened to or watched the first press conference of Israel's new war cabinet uh, under the rubric of the new emergency unity government that was created, uh, Benny Gantz, uh, and his National Unity Party uh, joined uh, Netanyahu's coalition as part of this emergency unity government. Uh, so the individuals actually running this war will be Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, 
Defense Minister Joab Gallant and uh, Benny Gantz, uh, former IDF Chief of Staff, and with uh, another IDF ch- former Chief of Staff, uh, Gadi Eisenkot, as an observer, and also former U.S. Ambassador to Washington, Ron Dermer, as an observer. So this will be the unit uh, that will actually be running running the war, um, and the, the actual regular cabinet was expanded, and Benny Gantz and a few other of his party members are going to be ministers in, in the cabinet. So if you listen to their first address to the nation last night, it was very clear that that was their objective. Uh, they all said it in varying in different ways, but the crux of it was that they are going to dismantle uh, Hamas in Gaza as a military and security threat to the state of Israel. Full stop. That's the objective of this campaign. Now, the means to that objective, I imagine, will have to include a major and expansive and deep ground offensive into the Gaza Strip. Now, whether that means, quote unquote, decapitation of Hamas, whether that means uh, striking a a fatal blow to its capabilities, but not a complete uh, decapitation or dismantlement, uh, I don't know. Uh, What does that mean in terms of Israel reoccupying the Gaza Strip? Will it go in and then think it can leave? So the end game, right, uh, the exit strategy, as it's called in military terms, is still not clear. Uh, but to my mind, the objective of this campaign is is quite clear. Uh, they're going to remove the threat of Hamas uh, from Gaza to the state of Israel. Uh, and that means uh, taking away its warfighting capabilities. So we're talking commanders, fighters, rockets, uh, any, any military assets, uh, and likely also the top leadership of the group. So uh, we still don't know what that will look like in reality, but I actually this time take Bibi Netanyahu at his word. Uh, he has framed this as a existential uh, war that Israel has to win and that there is uh, no going back to uh, what there was uh, prior to Saturday, which was essentially trying to uh, strike Hamas hard uh, after you know these successive rounds that we saw with uh, Hamas or other militant groups in Gaza every few months or every few years, where you go in and, and they were struck very hard um, at great cost, by the way, to to the Gaza Strip itself and the Gazan people. Uh, but there was uh, only ever a limited ground incursion, if at all, and usually under Bibi Netanyahu, there was no ground operation at all. It's important to to state, uh, but that the end goal, the exit strategy from these six previous rounds was to uh, degrade Hamas capabilities, not to dismantle Hamas as a warfighting entity, uh, and then afterwards deter Hamas from uh, launching uh, another offensive uh, or you know other attacks against Israel, and essentially solidifying Hamas rule in the Gaza Strip uh, through various uh, inducements brought about by indirect negotiations between Israel and Hamas, uh, the things we know about you know, in terms of moving cash into the Gaza Strip to fund uh, Hamas uh, salaries and whatever else Hamas wanted, uh, to ease restrictions on the movement of goods in and out of Gaza. Uh, last few years, we've also seen around almost 20,000 Workers from Gaza uh, receive permits to go work in Israel and to uh, make a much better living to ease the the real uh, economic situation inside the Gaza Strip. Um, all these kind of easing measures as part of this um, indirect negotiation, this arrangement, as they call it here, between Israel and Hamas, all that is done. It's done. 
there's no going back to that uh, Hamas, you know, even if it's in control of Gaza after all of this, which, which I find hard to believe. Uh, I, I suppose the notion is on the Israeli side that uh, it will no longer pose a threat to the state of Israel and to the Israeli people. You know, how you thread that needle uh, and how you get in, you know, to that objective with a number one, uh, not causing a complete humanitarian collapse in Gaza is going to be very difficult, very, very difficult as we're already seeing uh, the huge, the huge toll it will take on the people actually living in Gaza and not just the Hamas group uh, as, as an entity. Number two, the 150 hostages, and also I'll stress this again, I expect that number to rise. What happens to the Israeli hostages being held inside Gaza? Uh, and then number three, how do you do all of that and, and get out? You know, what happens to Gaza the day after? Who's going to actually take over or rebuild if uh, Hamas is, is no longer there? These are all still open questions. Clearly, Israel and the IDF uh, and Israel's leadership in general are grappling with some really important critical questions in this moment. And I think it probably requires a degree of level-headedness in addition to the ability for strategic thinking. So speaking of this new emergency unity government, I'm, I'm very grateful to see that Benny Gantz is included in it. Um, but we do still have some, some very extreme voices as part of the government. So will there be a limited ability of folks like Batsal Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir uh, to influence this government as they go to war? Because they are, of course, notorious for acting without considering necessarily all the consequences for Israel's long-term stability and security. And I'll tie that to the question of the West Bank, because you've already mentioned earlier in this podcast how the West Bank is not particularly stable. If we're to see the West Bank kind of ignite um, and, and get caught on fire, that is going to really limit Israel's ability to focus on the Gaza Strip and dismantling Hamas. So uh, how is this government going to balance all of those all of those options? So the honest answer is I don't know. Uh, I can only be optimistic and hopeful that uh, even for people like Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, what happened on Saturday uh, was a wake-up call for them to be a bit more responsible. Uh, I know that's a very, very tall order uh, for ideologues like like them and and the people they represent as we're seeing right now on the ground in the west bank you know in in i don't want to say more normal times but i guess in more responsible times you would expect uh settler leaders like smotrich and benver to get up there and say hey publicly hey do not take the law into your own hands do not attack palestinians do not kill palestinians in the west bank in revenge for what happened in southern israel on saturday uh because it uh not only is illegal, immoral, and straight murder, uh, it severely undermines the war effort. That's what I hope settler leaders like Smontrich and Benver would come out and say. Uh, I have yet to see that. Uh, so yes, their ability to cause major, major damage is, is still there. Uh, I'd say that the one silver lining is that nobody listens to them and no one takes them seriously anymore. Um, I'm talking about the vast majority of the public. Uh, and this goes, by the way, for most of the existing ministers in what had been this far-right Netanyahu coalition. Uh, I don't know if your listeners are aware. Some might be if they follow events in Israel very closely. But uh, Netanyahu government ministers can't go out in public and go to a hospital or a funeral without being yelled at, sometimes very, very um, emotionally, that this is all your fault and that this happened on your watch and that you people were dealing with all the other things that were not important 
in the best case and highly, highly damaging in the worst case, like the judicial overhaul for the past 10 months after you got back into, into power uh, and you let this massacre, the worst massacre to befall the Jewish people since the Holocaust, and that, that's actually not just rhetoric, it's, it's true, uh, to happen on your watch, how dare you show your face in public? So people uh, are, are very angry uh, at the government and uh, and so that's maybe uh, limiting or, or diminishing the influence of, of you know existing ministers, but uh, like like Ben Vir and Smotrich uh, to to meddle and cause trouble. But uh, they still might. They still might. That's a key reason, by the way, why Yair Lapid, the opposition leader, did not join this emergency unity government. He cited that in a speech earlier today. Uh, he he said that this this uh, structure, the system, uh, cannot work. Um, um, I, I hope Yair Lapid is wrong for the sake of everybody, uh, but uh, he, he identified that as a, as a major continuing problem. And, uh, and I'll also say in, in general, I'll say two things, by the way. Uh, in general, the, the public here really wanted this unity government. It really wanted unity. It wanted adults like Eisenkot and Gantz to go in and, and help run this war uh, and not just leave it to a cabinet with people like Ben Beer and Smotrich. And by the way, they're not the only ones that are um, subpar national leaders. I'll, I'll put it nicely. Uh, and so the public really wanted this. And so now that it, that it's happened, uh, hopefully Netanyahu is able to use their abilities wisely to, uh, to actually prosecute a successful war. The second thing I'll say is that um, one thing that people may miss um from afar and people who don't follow Hebrew language uh, media closely uh, and who don't know Hebrew um, or who don't speak to Israelis uh, on a regular basis, especially in recent days, is that the, the level of, it's not just anguish, it's, it's the level of, uh, how shall I put this, vengeance um, that they want to extract from the other side uh, I've never heard um, messages and rhetoric and real sentiments like that coming from even formerly very moderate, centrist, or even left-leaning Israelis. Um, and so, you know, one thing one thing at a time, but uh, when this war ends, and this war will eventually end, uh, on the backside of it, there will be a lot of work to be done to repair um, how Israelis view their place in the Middle East and, and the, the ability for coexistence uh, with, with the other side and, and the, the prospects for, for peace. You know, again, there's no other alternative, so uh, I'm still hopeful that that's still possible, but I'm just reporting and relaying uh, the mood on the street by, uh, I'd argue, the vast majority uh, of the Israeli public. And by the way, uh, I don't think we've reported it yet, but I got a hold of an opinion poll. Uh, so I don't, I haven't personally seen any opinion polls since, since the weekend, since, uh, uh, the Hamas uh, attack. Uh, but I think there's about 90%, over 90% of the Israeli public wants a ground operation into the Gaza Strip. Wow. That's, uh, I haven't seen 90% of Israelis agree on anything in a very, very long time. That's certainly exactly. statistic. Wow. Um, it's, it's obviously really hard to think about what the day after this, this war will look like and when that even will be, but it, it definitely resonates with me, this idea that we still have to 
think about how we're going to rebuild after all of this animosity. And I, I'm definitely thinking a whole lot about the folks on the ground in the West Bank and within Israel who are working really hard to lower the temperature and continue the relationships between Israelis and Palestinians and Palestinian citizens of Israel because truly the last thing that is needed is for a war to erupt within Israel proper and between uh, Jewish settlers and Palestinians in the West Bank. So very hopeful yeah. that at the very least that can be limited to the extent possible. And it really requires the leadership of the, the peace builders who, as you said, are, are also feeling extremely hurt and are in mourning and frankly, some also calling for for revenge and, and feeling things that I would never have expected to hear, but it really just drives home the enormity of the atrocity that we've seen the last week. Yes, uh, I, I definitely agree, Shani. Uh, there will be a lot of work uh, on the other side of all of this to be done to uh, to repair uh, the damage wrought by Hamas on Saturday. Uh, but by the way, we have to remember, uh, this isn't the first time Hamas has opted to blow up the prospects for peace and coexistence, whether you know on a piece of paper or just in daily life. All we have to do is look back at what they did in the 1990s in the heyday of the peace process where uh, successive suicide bombings in buses and cafes by them and Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, and other uh, Palestinian groups uh, really struck the death knell uh, for the peace process, culminating obviously in, in the Second Intifada in the early 2000s. Um, and by the way, we should also mention, Shani, you know, I'm not going to make this a history lesson in, uh, in the Gaza Strip or Israel-Gaza relations, but the, the tragedy of Gaza is that, uh, if you remember, the, the peace process in 1993, but really in 1994 when the Palestinian Authority was set up, uh, the first agreement was Gaza and Jericho first. So Jericho is in the West Bank, but Yasser Arafat returned first to the Gaza Strip. That's where the Palestinian Authority first began. Uh, and then you had also the um, uh, withdrawal in 2005 by Israel from the entire Gaza Strip. Ariel Sharon, then prime minister, uh, took out uh, both all the settlers, over 7,000 settlers in the entire IDF. And so the idea was that it would be a unilateral disengagement, as it's called, you know, a withdrawal from Gaza, and that it would be given uh, to the Palestinians to build up and uh, and be the bedrock of, a of I don't know if Harold Shul wanted a future Palestinian state, but at least uh, didn't have 7,000 settlers living in the midst of 2 million Palestinians. Uh, and then two years later, Hamas, uh, in a violent coup, uh, kicked out the Palestinian Authority and the Fatah Party uh, in 2007, or what should have been at least in 1994, and then in 2005, the beginning of maybe a more hopeful uh, period of relations between Israelis and Palestinians um, devolved after 2007 uh, into Hamastan on the Mediterranean, uh, a terror state on Israel's southwest uh, that refused to recognize Israel, uh, waged uh, first attacks against uh, the border crossings, and then you know, kept firing rockets at Starot and other southern Israeli communities. Uh, and so Israel, uh, after the Hamas takeover, uh, instituted a blockade of Gaza, along with Egypt, uh, that lasted for, for many years until, like I said, uh, after 2014, that, that uh, two-month war, uh, that's when it first uh, began to, to ease somewhat uh, in terms of the blockade. Uh, I think I was maybe the first journalist to report that uh, the UN envoy in Jerusalem at the time was actually the one who arranged a, uh, a Brinks truck of Qatari cash dollars 
that was brought in from Jordan across the Allenby Bridge, across Israel, and entered into the Gaza Strip uh, for the benefit of, of Hamas. Uh, that was part of the arrangement that helped end the 2014 war. Uh, and then all the you know successive rounds of fighting after that, uh, 2021, when Hamas escalated over clashes and tensions in, in Jerusalem, uh, despite uh, the economic situation in Gaza, uh, and then obviously what happened on Saturday, which was uh, really the the uh, the nadir uh, to well Israel-Gaza relations, and so now we're going into I believe a a very different period. But that's the tragedy of Gaza, right? It should have been very, very different, uh, and Hamas, uh, through its actions, really, throughout the 1990s, and then the 2000s, and then the 2010s, and now, well, we're now in 2023, uh, you know, I don't think the word spoiler is, is strong enough uh, to explain what they've actually done here uh, to Arab, Jewish, you know, Israeli-Palestinian relations, and by the way, that's their, that's their objective. Um, I'll tell you a, a little anecdote. Uh, a number of years ago now, it wasn't, it wasn't a few years ago, it was actually several years ago, I was sitting in uh, one of these kind of very, very plain, uh, you know, desk, chair, maybe one painting on the wall, this one of these kind of very classic Israeli military offices on a, uh, on a specific base, and I was speaking to an intel officer, and I was asking him, you know, about Hamas strategy, and, you know, what's their rationale, what's their motivation? And he stopped, he looked at me, he's like, Neri, sit down, have a cup of coffee. It's going to take a while. Hamas's time frame, their timeline, their ideology, uh, you can't measure it in months, in years. You can't measure it in the lifetime of a citizen living under their despotic rule. Uh, they look at it in decades and even in centuries uh, to fulfill their jihadist vision. Thank you for those reflections, Neri. It, it only drives home. It only really exacerbates how tragic this whole situation is, but I think it's really helpful for us to all reflect on the rise of Hamas to power and and what what tragedy that means for Israelis and for Palestinians and how how far back we are being set um, but hopefully in in the long term Hamas will will not win and and of course it's um, it only makes our efforts to to persevere in the very long term when we think about rebuilding that much more important, Neri, I don't know if there's there's anything left to say. We've covered so much from the Northern Front to the West Bank in Jerusalem, but um, I'd, I'd love for you to add anything else that you think it's really important for our listeners to be thinking about right now. Um, well, what do we keep saying? Uh, there are no words, uh, even though we, we used a lot of words to try to explain uh, what happened here uh, over this past week. But, uh, you know, I thought it was important, uh, despite everything going on, to come on and, and speak directly to... Uh, to the listeners of uh, the Israel Policy Pod and uh, people who are connected and uh, are committed to Israel Policy Forum to try to shed some light on uh, developments here on the ground. Um, so uh, thank you, Shani, for, for hosting and interviewing me, uh, which I always enjoy because last time we did this, I, I told you that it's... Uh, it's a lot harder to be a host than it is a guest because as a guest, you just react to the questions and you can kind of keep talking and talking. Uh, as a host, you have to be a, a lot more intentional about the questions and the direction and the flow of the conversation. Um, but on a more serious note, uh, for everyone listening, uh, keep keep the Israeli people uh, in your minds and your hearts. Um, you know, uh, they'll, they'll get through it. Uh, you know, they, they will 
uh, eventually win this war. Um, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, again, I'm not going to sugarcoat things, uh, but this war, like all wars, will will end. Uh, and also keep the people of Gaza uh, in your hearts and minds as well. Uh, they are they are innocent victims in all this, living under a cruel uh, and despotic regime that uh, took over their lives in 2007 uh, and brought nothing but ruin and devastation uh, to their lives, uh, tragically so. Uh, and so uh, hopefully this war um, ends sooner rather than later for, for everybody living here uh, and we can, uh, like you said, rebuild uh, after that. Thank you, Neri. Hopefully in the next podcast, we will have some better news to report. Uh, God willing and uh, inshallah. Bye, Neri. Bye, Shani. Thanks. Israel Policy Forum is outraged by this week's despicable attacks by Hamas terrorists. We pray for the recovery of those injured, the return of those taken hostage, and the comfort of the families who have been upended as we mourn the lives that have been lost. Tangible U.S. support is critical amid this crisis. We applaud President Biden's efforts to strengthen Israeli security and deterrence, and we fully support any moves that the administration and Congress undertake to maintain Israel's ability to be safe from its enemies. As Israelis gird themselves for the war ahead, and Jews around the world process the traumatic events of the past few days, Israel Policy Forum experts have been providing timely, clear-headed, and sober analysis on the ongoing conflict. In this week's Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau explained how this strategy shattered Israelis' sense of security, their leaders' legacies, and American Jewish politics. In the foreword, Michael wrote on why Palestinian society and leadership must speak out to condemn the Hamas attack, and in The Hill, he detailed how the U.S. should support Israel as the war unfolds. In the Christian Science Monitor, Israel Policy Pod host Neri Zilber unpacked how the shared trauma of this conflict is reshaping Israeli society and driving Israelis to put aside recent differences. In the Financial Times, Neri discussed the implications of Israel's new wartime unity government. In Defense Opinion, IPF Atid Coordinator of Chapter Engagement and Strategy Rebecca Mandelbaum and I, Senior Policy and Communications Associate Alex Lederman, co-authored an article on the strategic challenges Israel must consider as it prepares to invade Gaza. Links to all of these resources, including a list of our full statements since October 7th, can be found in the show notes of this podcast. For more analysis, visit israelpolicyforum.org.